Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about publishing. We're talking about what it looks like to start a small publishing company to run one of those, the mistakes that have been made that we can all learn from. And we've got Marshall Britt from Yana Guana Games. Marshall, really appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, thanks, Gabe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to learn. This is something I have no idea about. I understand a little bit of business stuff. You know, I had to start an LLC a while back. I, you know, I was doing some different things. So I get that whole, like, go through LegalZoom and let them do most of it for you. Uh, but as far as, like, a game company, I got no clue. So I'm really excited about you being on the show and what you have to teach us today. Thanks. Sure. So we we uh, we didn't have any clue to start with either. So that's yeah. I'll, you'll you'll hear a lot of what you know what would happen if you just did it from right now with no information because that's what we did and like you said a lot of mistakes uh, along the way. Yeah, yeah. And I tell people all the time, you know, failure is the best teacher, but it doesn't necessarily have to be your failure that you learn from. So I'm excited to learn from maybe some of your failures and, and uh, also tell me your success. I know you guys have got a uh, one or two games that are doing really well that you're selling out at conventions, which is really cool. And I'm excited to hear about conventions and how you guys do things. But first of all, just tell me who you are for people that maybe never heard of you, don't know who Yanaguana, and I'm interested, you know, tell people how Yanaguana games came about, that name and all that. But tell us uh, who you are. Sure. So. Uh, I'm, my name's Marshall. I'm essentially the designer uh, and co-owner of Yanaguana Games. Uh, my partner's name is Andrew Toast. Uh, he's the developer and other owner. Uh, and we essentially all got started uh, as a group of three uh, back in PAX 2015, PAX South, the first year they ever came to San Antonio. Um, and we just saw people doing their thing, selling games, um, one of whom was J.R. Honeycutt, selling his uh, word game Twerk. Uh, so... You know, we met him, um, another friend named uh, Steven, who was selling his game, Billionaire Banshee. And we sort of met these guys and go, you do this all the time? You sell games? You know, this is what you do? And they said, yeah, you know, I make games, I sell games. I said, well, we've all been sitting around playing Magic for like four or five years and just, you know, spending lots of money on games. And we sort of started discussing. And it was just an idea at that point. Uh, three months later, uh, Alex uh, Clifford and I, which was our third partner at the time, uh, founded the company and founded an LLC. The things you said, essentially, went through LegalZoom, found all the different paperwork we needed to find. Alex, fortunately, already had a master in business. So we were very, very ahead of the gun when it came to that point. But we still made tons of mistakes. Just the master in business is not the experience side, you know. So we founded the company. We started working on a game called Shipload of Gold. Um, we did a small print run of that one and, and sort of started getting ready for PAX the next year. And that was our whole plan. Um, and essentially, that's how Yanaguana got founded, was we started making a game without knowing how to do anything, how to print anything. Um, and we just went online and looked up where to make cards. Uh, and we found a, an address and went from there. Um, <clears throat> about two months before PAX 2016, we looked at a board game geek challenge that said, design a game with 18 cards and a half a sheet of paper. And I was sitting in my house that afternoon and just went, well, let me just give this a shot because I'm fooling around. I, I'm not a game designer. I'm just a hobbyist at this point, still thinking that I you know, don't do this professionally. Up until weeks ago, I still feel that way sometimes. You know, so. But we uh, put that game together uh, within about two weeks, and it's a game about bluffing and getting the most points and cooking stir-fry. Uh, pulled it out of the challenge and said, we're just going to print this and take it to PAX and see if we can get it done. 
Uh, the printer we'd worked with previously said we can't get you a box or any of that fun stuff. So we just had them send us the cards. And the night before PAX, I want to say, it was the Thursday night before PAX. So really, we should have been down setting up our booth. We were sitting at Andrew's house, throwing all the cards into uh, little Chinese takeout boxes with rules that we'd printed out on his printer and folded ourselves yeah. and a fortune cookie in every single one nice. and a little bit of confetti or whatever. And we took all of these, uh, you know, takeout boxes to PAX South 2016, and we sold out by Sunday morning wow. uh, of the entire print run. Uh, Shipload sold about 50 copies. It did okay, but clearly Stir Fry 18 was the game that said, hey, welcome to the industry. You're kind of supposed to be doing this. And uh, essentially, I would say that, like, PAX South 2016 is where our company started. Up until then, all we'd done is spend money on stuff that we had in our garage. Right. Uh, we went there, and, and that's where Yanaguana sort of was birthed. So... From there, uh, it, it gets a little strange. Alex had been deployed at this point to uh, the UK with his wife uh, in, in the military. We've been working back and forth from the UK to uh, San Antonio, Texas, which is where both Andrew and I were. Uh, and I think we were staying up until 1130 at night. and He was getting up at 630 in the morning and we'd meet for an hour. And I mean, it, it was not good for anyone in those terms. So like a punch that was being dealt to us constantly is that our business manager is on a seven hour difference and it was really really difficult to keep up with at one point alex just said hey guys i i've got to sort of step out and move on uh and uh we came to an agreement in terms of a, a percentage for you know the games we've worked on and stuff like that in previous print runs and uh worked out what we would do from there and that's how andrew and i became the two owners of yonaguana uh, is we split the assets and the, the debts 50-50 because at that point, uh, I don't think we'd turned profit yet. We were simply still sort of paying for games and getting them back out there and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. And I guess that might have been a kind of long introduction, but it was a long, messy start for us. Sir. Yeah, and I'm definitely interested in getting into a couple of those things. But first of all, what is Yanaguana? Tell, tell people what that even means. Sure. So Yanaguana is the indian name for the area that is san antonio texas uh and especially for the downtown area there's an area that's got a river running through it uh and that essentially supported not just the yanaguana tribe from what we understand but it's a substantial amount of south texan indian tribes were, were supported by this water source so it's a pretty cool area you can go and see sort of historically that like this was here at a time before you know any of us were even on this continent and was a, a an amazing sort of source of life. And it's it's a really, really cool thing. And we went a, a lot of different ways around, but Yanaguana is where our roots are. All of us were San Antonio Magic players. We played that game uh, competitively in the South Texas area for a long time. So it just felt right. And it's a, you know, we're still tied to home. My entire family lives in, in San Antonio. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. You, you named it after where the whole thing was conceived. I get it. I've got a friend sure. named Dallas because he was made in, Dallas. And so, <laughs> and so that's, that's really cool, man. All right. So let's go back into the, the whole partnership thing. Uh, Cause that's something, you know, I've talked to other people and it did not end well, you know, they had partnerships end, but it ended in fire and just devastation kind of things. It sounds like you guys kind of figured it out and the best way to do it. Yeah. So trust, trust is a big thing, right? Yeah. Um, you, you have to trust anyone you get into business with before you sit down and, and start talking with them. Um, Alex and Andrew are two people I would trust uh, with my son. You know, I, I would trust them to take my son to a park and or take care of him while I had to go take care of something. And I think 
Uh, a lot of people say don't mix business and friendship. I, I don't necessarily agree. I think you need to trust someone like a friend to get into business with them in general. And that's just my personal philosophy. Yeah. Uh, if we get into business, we're probably going to have a pretty close relationship, you know, to a certain extent. Um, the other level of trust is vetting. If I don't, you know, don't know someone, I'll have to vet them, of course. You know, for our outside stuff, we've had to do that. But in, in this case, I knew these two people as good human beings first, right? And, and, and from that, being reasonable and rational is really a there's a lot to be said for that you just be polite and and if 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 something's not working out or someone isn't feeling that something's fair you just say well what do you think is fair and let's compromise and let's find this sort of middle ground where everyone's happy and i think that's what we did to uh form our partnership and then when we had to change our partnership that's what we did as well was uh, find a, a middle ground where everyone would be happy and uh, also leave doors open i mean it's um you know to say that our company is not going to grow again and maybe not reabsorb someone when they come back to the United States would be, you know, obscene. This is, you know, it's just a matter of, um, I guess, time and, you know, uh, patience. Yeah. That's, that's all a business relationship is. It's a lot of patience and, and being willing to negotiate um, compromises that don't necessarily uh, harm anyone. You, you know, that's the, the main thing is like, we're all trying to, to be happy at the end of the day. So, yeah, and kind of what we were talking about before the show, I love uh, the way you guys kind of uh, put your business together. You had one one of you that's a designer, one of you that's more of a developer, and one that was more of the business mind. And so you kind of had three people coming together to, to fill each of those roles, which is a really smart way to do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you want to have uh, sort of compartmentalization to a certain extent. While everybody has input for all sorts yeah. of things, um, you, you each have your tasks, right? And so when that dissolvement sort of happens as well, you've also got to go, oh, Oh, crud, what do we do? You know, now I was the designer, you and the artist, and you were the developer. And, and now now we've got to split these taxes and business between us. And you learn delegation is huge, is that hiring people to do these things are a really, really big part of a business, um, particularly when you don't have a lot of capital to start up like we did. Um, a thing I would generally suggest is offering points on your Kickstarter to someone who's going to become your CPA over time or um, working out uh, an agreement deal for percentages on your retail sales. There's a lot of things CPAs will do because they're good with money and they know how this business works as well. So um, talk to them. Again, that's all about that compromise stuff. Uh, you know, once we figured out we had to do it on our own, those mistakes of me doing our taxes have cost us hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I mean, just recently I paid a, a tax bill that was not filed in time on my part because I'm not an accountant. I, I just don't, you know, it's it's very hard for me to keep up with that and design a game and go to a, con you know, a, a convention this weekend and then monday remember oh i've got to file that tax bill and you know it's I, I i definitely say our biggest mistake is not going oh you do this stuff you do this stuff you're you're a professional you take care of this now and we're we're completely learning that later on in the game yeah all right so let's talk about maybe some more mistakes you've you you've made that people can learn from that you've learned from that if i'm starting my company today that i need to hear tell me the things i need to know so i don't travel down some of those roads Sure. So the very first one is uh, doing things like self-stuffing rules into games prior to conventions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason manufacturing is done the way it is, and it's because you don't have the time to put rules into every copy of your own game and then put it in a little baggie, tie it up, and, and sell it. It's just there's you're never going to keep up with the demand for your game if it becomes popular, if that's your uh, manufacturing process is, is in your house. So uh, let your manufacturer put everything together and ship it ready to go. That's that's my number one thing is because I see so many people putting their components together and then selling, you know, the thing. We did that initially. 
and we've learned how much it cost us and it was lots i mean it's 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 a matter of dollars per game that yeah. we lost in, in time doing that. well yeah talking about opportunity cost right so maybe you're saving some money from a bottom line like dollars and cents point but you're losing so much time and what is that time worth in money yeah. and on top of that i mean it's just you know your your creative mind's not being expressed when you're stuffing envelopes at all so small print runs would be the second major hiccup i would i would say that we ran into we did very small print runs initially like a hundred games yeah. um i would say if you can find even a publisher who's willing to get into some sort of agreement where you split the cost print more games it's going to cost you less you're going to have more if it becomes popular and if it's not, you're still going to be able to sell your inventory off over time. So the idea generally is, in, in my mind, that you want to print about 500 plus games if you believe in your game. Yeah. Um, at printing 100 games, that's almost hobbyist level. And that's why I would say we didn't really get into it until we started selling games and printing larger amounts. That's, the idea is, if you've taken the time to craft something and you're going to go out and sell it, you want to have enough of it to sell a year's worth that might make enough money to make the next thing. And 500 is even pretty small on that side when you think about it. Yeah. So, um, again, if you just create a game with some sort of ratty art and stuff like that and try to go to a, a major distributor, you're also not going to be able to sell them 2,000 games. It's just not how it works. So there is a middle ground. But I say to most people who start, if you print 100 games, you're probably not making a ton of money for sale. And that's not going to get you to the next thing. So uh, larger print runs to start with and really solidify your game before you print it. Yeah, and like you say, if you want to just print 100 copies and go to a, a flea market or go to a con and sell them and that's your, your hobby, that's awesome. Like, Please go do that. Please don't feel like Absolutely. you have to have... You I know, have games like that on my shelf, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't feel like you have to have a 1,000 games in your garage that you're going to try to sell. You know, If that's not what you want to do, then don't do that. But if you're really trying to have a business, and I guess that's really what we're talking about, having a small publishing business, not just a small publishing hobby, you, you need to print more games. And if you don't feel like your game's going to sell then maybe you need to work more on that game or don't even do that game at all. Like if you don't really feel confident in it. So our first game, um, that's one that we only printed a small run of. And, um, you know, we, we learned a lot there. And so that's one that needs a new fresh coat of paint and things like that if it's ever going to get back on the line. But, yeah, we're not printing it again. It's, you know, it's, so if we won't see print again currently in our lineup, it's not scheduled. Yeah. Um, you know, that you have to make that decision as a publisher too. When a game doesn't, you know, sell fast, don't reprint it. You know, if you oh, we sold 100 copies this year, done. Don't don't sell it anymore. You know, unless that's just a hobbyist printing again. Um, so, same thing with that is package your games with barcodes. Anyone who owns Stir Fry knows that it does not have a barcode. We never knew that this would be important for us. We never knew distributors would be. Oh, now we've got to throw our own little sticker on the back and get really frustrated with us when we sold them a thousand of them or something. So it's it's a big deal is to learn a barcode is cheap. Uh, 10 barcodes is not very much for the course of, you know, your company for, for a year. Um, get it, put it on there. And in the case that target says, Hey, we'll take a hundred thousand of these. You're ready to rock. You yeah. can just call your printer and say, let's go. Now, um, where do you, where so, do you get a barcode? Uh, so there's a, uh, company online that i think is just about the only one i believe it's called uh gs1 excuse me so gs1 is the uh, barcode company that we use um there are a couple organizations you can get them from but you, you pay uh the rate listed for x amount i think we own 10 right now that we're getting ready to put on all our games uh and it was very very inexpensive for 10 barcodes that changes your game again retailers can go boop, scan your stuff i mean you know and so that also is a difference between hobbyist gaming and sort of a professional published game is having a barcode. 
we didn't learn that until almost nine months ago. You know, we've been doing this for three and a half years and it just didn't dawn on us that we needed that. Many of our retail uh, locations use Crystal, which is something that doesn't require a barcode. They just go stir fry and that's the game they're selling and then they sell it. Uh, others have their own stickers. So it hadn't been too much of a problem for us until I learned that retailers on the largest scale won't even look at it if the, the barcode's not there. So your yeah. target, you know, your, your major, major outlets. And um, ultimately, they're buying games in large amounts now. So you want to be able to, you know, you want to be prepared to um, jump on that opportunity if it yeah. comes up. You want the lowest barrier to entry as you can get. Like you want it to be as simple as one click. And they're in. And I think you said in one of your previous podcasts that luck is, you know, preparation and opportunity when yeah. they're meeting. You know, it's when they collide. And that's a big thing. If you're prepared and that opportunity arises, that the target buyer comes by your booth at Gen Con or Origins and says, what's this? And you show, you know, you're ready. You get a barcode. You say, I can get you a bunch of them, you know, X amount in these stores by this day. You might have just made the biggest sale of your entire year. Right. Um, but if you didn't have a barcode, maybe that doesn't happen. Um, the other major thing I would say is that we initially wanted to control our point of sale. So the only place you can purchase Stir Fry 18 right now is via our website or the retailers that we've sold games to. So every time a game is sold, we know exactly where, when, why, how, who, for the most part. Um, we did do uh, you know a, a couple of retail distribution outlets that maybe got our games into places we don't know about. But for the most part, we know where every game is. That's completely unimportant. It's completely <laughs> useless information. Yeah. It does not matter. And and having that amount of control has probably cost us, uh, you know, X amount of dollars. I can't can't really equate it, but I can tell you that, I, you know, not being on things like Amazon certainly costs us money. A yeah. regular email that I get is, oh, I can't find you on Amazon. I don't want to buy directly from your site for X, X Y, or Z reasons. Um, I have my reasons for not being on those platforms. Our price point, of course, is $10 for stir fry. So... Um, with things like Amazon Prime in the mix, which is what everybody wants for something like that, to ship a game of you know in two days that costs ten dollars, you know, on our side, if we do free shipping with it, it's going to be very very difficult to fulfill uh, at at the current current scale we're at. Yeah, yeah, you, you'd make like thirty cents. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, even if we break even, you know, there's <clears throat> if we if there's a loss on one or two copies on that, now you've lost money. Right. So, and we want to keep making fun games for people. And to do that, we have to stay in business, right? Like, so that's <laughs> <laughs> that's an important detail that sometimes people forget. I, I think so. I, I think incredibly, people forget that you know, you know, game game developers. We do love this. Like, I mean, it's a hobby right. by all means. I love it. But now that I've turned it into my profession, I've got to make it profitable at the end of the day. So. Right. Yeah. If you make a thousand dollars, but it costs you two thousand dollars to make that thousand, you, you ain't gonna be around. So. And initially, again, getting my game onto a shelf where people purchased it and took it home was just this thrilling feeling, yeah. right? Like, oh, my God, I've done it. You know, it's like an author being read. I'm mm -hmm. sure you just see somebody reading your book. You freak out. I see, see people playing stir fry in a line. I go, this is incredible still. You know, if I'm yeah. a Jim Connor at a PAX and I see people playing in line, it, it warms my heart. But it also warms my heart to go, oh, look at this. We've got a bank account that we can now... <laughs> Um, make another game that more people will do right. things for. And, you know, we, we, we can now bring on this um, consultant to help us do better things, which, you know, it, it's you can do better by by knowing better. That's yeah. kind of the way I, uh, I heard a guy talking about one time and he was a speaker and he goes all around the, the world speaking and he charges for things. And, and some, one time people, they got a little upset because they thought he was charging too much money for something. And they said, you're just doing it for the money. 
And he said, here's the deal. I love this. I love he, he's a, you know helping people and doing different things and self-motivation and all that kind of stuff. And he said, look, I don't do this to make money. I make money so I can do this. Like be, making this money helps me continue to go around the world and help people and speak and do all the stuff that I love and have a passion for. And it helps people and they, you know, they, they're better off for it. And so I need money to do that. And so it's the same with games. If you want to keep making great games for people to enjoy, you're going to have to make money to do it. And so that's just how it is. And I think the games industry is completely full of people who absolutely are passionate about making good games. Yep. I think there's far less of the money-driven um, folks in the industry. Yep. I'm sure they exist. I don't encounter them very often. So it's you know this is a passion-driven business because it comes through in the games. But um, in terms of mistakes, that's one thing we definitely didn't do. We had passion. We had a lot of passion. We had a lot of drive. Unfortunately, we drove right into a wall initially in terms of, you know, uh, just doing some financial mistakes, like I said, self-stuffing rules, just things that, you know, probably any other designer was laughing at us for if they would have seen it, you know, like, yeah. really? Okay, guys, you know, that, that sort of stuff. But the main thing is accounting. Um, Money-wise, you need to have somebody who knows how to do all of it. Um, we've had so many small costs that have added up to big costs from mistakes. We've had so many lost tax breaks that we didn't find that, uh, you know, uh, two years later, our, our tax person goes, you know, last year you could have saved 10 grand by writing off your rent because you work out of your house, yep. you know, and things like that stuff we just did not fathom. So uh, a lot of those things are completely worth it. And those people will make that money that they find back for you. Yep. So, you know, you want you want to get professionals as, as much as possible. And we'll talk about that when it comes to even running a Kickstarter. in a little bit. So. Yeah, for sure. All right. More mistakes first, though. Okay, so um, another mistake is uh, buying large amounts of space when you are a very small developer at big, big conventions. Um, I won't name any of them. They're all fantastic. I love going to them. But when you're purchasing space at a convention, it can be very expensive. Yeah. You can do uh, just as well getting the smallest space available and just showing your product or something like that. Um, also, talk to convention organizers. If it says no retail at this size space, Maybe you say, hey, can I pay an extra 100 to do retail sales at that small table or something like that? They're, they want to work with you, especially as a small publisher. They want you to grow because if you grow, their show grows. If you all grow together, it's a mutually beneficial uh, relationship. It's, you know, I will say one that we've done very well at is PAX, the, the Penny Arcade Expo. It is really a fantastic show every time we go. Everyone there is fantastic. All the people who run it are smart and you know on the ball. Uh, I've never had a bad show, so it's great, but it's expensive. You know, if you're a small, small developer who has no funding and you, you want a large booth there, you're going to have to put up some real money, maybe what more than what your print run, print run was yeah. for, a, for a game. And so think about your engagement potential at anything you do, because we were a group of three people. And I believe our first year we went to PAX South uh, to sell. And I believe the count for the weekend was something like 120,000 people over wow. three days. Ridiculous number for the inaugural PAX South, right? Uh, I may be overstating that a little bit, but regardless what the number was, between the three of us, I can guarantee we didn't talk to more than 2,000 people right. because that's how many people you can talk to in three days with three people. Yeah. We had a uh, GoPro filming us on top and I did timed amounts of each, you know, and it, it's just, you know, there's, you need about four minutes to show someone a game. Uh, four minutes times three people, you can sort of extrapolate that. And then you need bathroom breaks, time to eat, all that sort of stuff. You've paid to engage a few hundred thousand people or, you know, a hundred thousand people, but you're only going to engage 2,000 of them. Yeah. Be conscious of what you can actually do and what you can do for exposure. In that same regard, 
we had tiny signage our first year. Like we didn't have these big, massive banners. And then I have these friends like uh, Jason Anarchy who does Drinking Quests. Um, every game of his, he's got this massive banner just, you know, up showing. And he said, why don't you have massive banners showing all your games? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I can't see what you have. You know, we've yeah. got our boxes on the table, but at a convention setting, you've got to have massive presence, you know, as much signage as you can to just go, hey, look at us. And that's just, again, things you learn as you go. Yeah. And like you say, you don't have to have some huge booth, but you need to make the most of the space you have. And whether that's having extra people, like I, I just got back from Origins a couple of days ago as we're recording this. And, you know, I went to every single booth. Like, I, I wasn't concerned with how big a booth was. I wanted to see every inch of that exhibitor hall. I wanted to see every game. I saw so many games I never even heard of. It was amazing. You know, but the it was the booth that had, like, extra people that I was able to kind of look over shoulders and, like, watch people get, you know, demos and everything. Those are the ones I spent the most time at. You know, it, and the ones that had just these huge presents with all these, like, mountains of games stacked up. It's like, oh, that's... That's cool. I don't even I don't know anything about your game. All right, I'll move on to the next one. You know, it's not about the space. It's about really utilizing that space. If it's a banner with, you know, pictures of your game, of what the parts look like, or having a little handout or flyer to give people something yeah. just to show in, them in, engagement. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. You've got to have engagement with every person that comes up and, yeah. and even looks in, and and that's a big thing I see a lot of at conventions. I'll see just people sitting back in a chair, leaning back, and I assume yeah. they just work for a company, maybe. Um, but since we own it, we're very invested. <laughs> a little in more invested. That comes by, you know. It's yeah. a, hey, what's going on, man? And I sometimes I even feel kind of you know you get to feel silly because you're just every person you're going, hey, you know. So we've got chicken and pig over here because we're talking about our stir fry game or whatever. But yeah. you've got to be silly. You've got to do stuff because it's a huge loud hall. And when you're talking about packs, you're competing with all the video games right over right. here, you know, which are very, you know, they're impressive. You know, even if you are a board game, video games are awesome. You know, I, I play them as well. If you're a board game guy, you still want to check out all the other stuff. So, I mean, it's loud. It's it, you've got to do something to get people's attention. But once they're there, you certainly have to engage them, tell about your game. If you just sit in front of a pile of games that you're selling, it does work for stuff that's already got a following. But yeah. if not, I mean, how are you going to grow? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you're not engaging people. And, you know, actually, I bought a book. So at Origins, they, they had, like, the little author section. And it was kind of sad because people don't really go over there. I'm not sure why, as an author, you would come to that. I, don't, I just don't feel like you're going to make your money back. I don't know how much it costs, but anyway. But there was this one guy, as I was walking by, he, like, stopped me. And he said, it's something, he's trying to sell, like, a dwarf cookbook. And, like, I guess he was assuming I played D&D. &D. He's like, yeah, whenever, you're, whenever your players go into a, an inn, you can actually have, like, real menus, and you could use this real book. I'm like, no no thanks, man. And, and he's like, well, can I show you something else? And I was like, okay. You know, it's like, all right, fine. Yeah, I mean, I'll listen yeah, to you. He's got your, he's got your attention. Exactly. Right, yeah. And I ended up buying, like, this little $6 book, this little adventure role-playing thing that I thought was kind of cool. It was a little interesting thing. I had no desire for a dwarven cookbook, but he opened the door. He, he started the loop. So to speak. Had he not engaged with you, he'd have lost $6. Exactly. I would have walked I mean, right by, pretty, never yeah, thought about exactly. anything. And so he made a $6 sale and, and because he engaged. And there was like 10 other authors there just sitting there playing on their phones, whatever. Like, Leaning back. That's yeah, yeah. yeah. I see that a lot of conventions, and I, I often don't understand it. I think there can be some frustration with maybe not getting some people coming through or something like yeah. that. And so at the end of the weekend, you get a little tired. But, yeah, I mean, it, if you're there – Sell your brands yeah. uh, the best you can, and your brand is you if you're an author, right? right? And so we're game developers. Our brand is us. We only recently, I mean, we wear polo shirts, you know, with our brand on the you know front. It's we've been very professional for the most part. Um, we're coming away from sort of the dress code aspect. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that we need that as much because we 
have learned that the industry is a little more forgiving of, you know, hey, if I want to wear my hat backwards or something like that to a convention, yeah. as long as you know I'm with my company, it's fine. Right. And I think that's totally cool. However, you still need to maintain a professional, you know, uh, outlook, be off your phone, because if you're sitting there staring at your phone, unless it's an email about your Kickstarter or something like major, get off the phone. You've got people in front of you at a convention who want to know what your product is. Yeah. You know, that's the thing is that they bought tickets to come hear you tell them about what you've got. That's a, a for most conventions, they paid to get in to see what you've got. So, you know, they're they're invested already in hearing what you've got to say. You just really have to engage them. But yeah, like you said, I'll see folks leaning back at a convention that clearly paid for space and go, you know, this is this is work, right? That's right. the thing. That's it's, it's work. It is work. So. Yeah, for sure. All right. What's the next one? Um, so uh, the next major mistake I would uh, and probably the last major mistake we made is like a as like a whole business strategy was like we had this bubble of just the three of us figuring things out all the time. Right. So consistently just like bouncing ideas off of each other, which is great. You need to have multiple people. But we weren't asking industry insiders, yeah. people that we knew any of the questions about like, hey, how did you do it? Hey, who do you print with? Hey, who's your manufacturer? You know, and so. I finally started at one point talking to my friends from like Geek Fever Games and Elm City and Boston Fig, the guys who run that, which are stuff that we just learned about since I moved up here. And they all plugged me into, I mean, an enormous amount of stuff, even like JR. I mean, all of those guys have been incredibly helpful. Uh, Daniel uh, Zayas as well, the Daniel Zayas company, yeah. have been incredibly instrumental in helping us improve our communication lines with manufacturers, our costs, our, I mean, it, it, the number of things they've improved just by saying, oh, well, hey, have you looked at this? Oh, hey, have you looked at this? This is just another option. I know you guys do it this way, but here's another option that you can look at. I mean, and just listening to other people. Like, it's it seems so simple, but when you get focused in a company, you try to, you know, okay, everything's got to be our way, our secret. So, you know, we have some, no, other people have done it better, and you need to learn from them. Yeah, and other people have made mistakes that they would be glad to help you from, which is exactly what we're talking about right now, and you're trying to help other people. And that's Absolutely. Just, and other people have made more money than you. And <laughs> a lot of people have made more money than me. That's, oh, you know, oh, it's yeah. a, that's a, I mean, like, you know, I, I, I've taken advice from, like you said, you had Jamie on the very first one. I listened to your podcast. I mean, the, the people you have on are people I take advice from regularly. Jamie's recent blog about a tax issue is one of the things that got us to have an accountant look into our situation for our upcoming Kickstarter. And he said, yeah, if we didn't, if we didn't structure this right, we could have really gotten into trouble this year. So this is a good thing to know, you know, so Listen to the designers who are yeah. saying, you know, hey, this is the mistake I made. This is the thing I did. I mean, I, I think Jamie's probably one of the most successful names in, in companies. Stone is amazing in the industry right now. And even he's going, look at this huge mistake I made. Yeah. You know, that transparency doesn't exist in any other industry. I've worked in a lot of different businesses, and those kind of things are hidden. You know? Right. So. No, I completely agree. And I've found so many people just so willing to share mistakes and, and things that they've messed up and, and ways to do things differently or just do things better, you know, whatever that looks like. I think if our industry gets better as a whole, right, the exactly. entire quality gets better. So why not? Why not help each other? Uh, that is something very unique to the tabletop industry. And it's part of the reason I've, I've chose this as a sort of my life. It's just the people are amazing and the mindsets are far less of the cutthroat type that I've, I've found previously in other careers. Yeah, I think board game industry is a semi-cooperative thing. You know, it's not traitors and backstabbing and, comp you know, you're competing, but it's semi-cooperative. Well, there's so many, so many co-development projects yeah. going on between people that are normally, you know, you'd think would be competitors, but really they're, oh, no, I'm working on a game with him. You know, yeah. it's a, it, it happens all the time. So right. I was talking to um, 
I think it was Chris Kirkman the other day, who, who runs Dice Hate Me Games, and he was telling me about pitching one of the games he's working on to a totally different publisher. He's like, yeah, it doesn't fit with my company. And so I'm talking to this guy over here who publishes more of that style of game. He's like, what What? what other industry does that happen? You know, so, where- so I send my adult theme games. We were, Yana Gorn is a family company. Yeah. Anything that I come up with is an adult theme game. I have another publisher friend that I say, hey, why don't you take a look at this and see if you can give me some points on it if you decide to do something with it. Yeah. I do that all the time. I yep. send stuff that's not going to fit our brand to other people. That's yeah. And again, that's not not common in other industries, like you said. Right. All right. So, any other mistakes? Any other big things? Um, you know, I think the only other stuff I would say is depending on what state you're in, make sure you file with your secretary of state all that stuff correctly, and choose the state like carefully. You know, yep. look at what states offer what things, and you don't necessarily have to have a residence in the state. You can have an office there. There are certain things you can do, but. Find people who run, like I said, this is more about finding people who have done it better and ask them how it works. That seems to be the, the major overall thing that we could have done better all around the, all around the, uh, the company. Yeah. All right. So you talked about finding an accountant and, and outsourcing things that need to be outsourced. How did you do that? How did you find somebody to help you with this? So essentially, I mean, whatever state you're in, there's going to be certified public accountants that you can you know, hire and talk to and <clears throat> discuss what your needs are with them. Uh, however, there's also some folks who are more specialized in this new sort of Kickstarter uh, world we're in. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to give any names or an endorsements at this point, but you know, do your research, see what you think is best. And if you're going to do a lot of Kickstarters, find somebody who does Kickstarter work. Find somebody who does ha- has some at least Kickstarter background or crowdfunding background, because if you don't, you'll find loopholes or issues that come up kind of like Jamie did with that, with the big issue they had is that those are things that you just can't navigate unless you've been working in that sort of world for a while. Um, If it's tabletop and manufacturing that you're going to really work in, find somebody who's a CPA for manufacturing or, or, or large retail outlets because they understand the breaks and the different levels you have to sell at to get a break. So you want them to help you and guide you and things like that. It really is specific to your needs and the level of money you plan on making per year, because some of them, you have to make more money than they, you know, allow um, before they're going to even look at what you have to offer. So uh, it does depend on, on what you make in a year and what you plan to do with it. But the main thing is, is don't do it by yourself if it's a business. Don't go on TurboTax and try. I mean, that's what I've done for two years. And I've just found issue after issue once we got a professional. So, I, you know, it's right from the get go. You want to find a professional if at all possible. I will say that um, there are some professionals that TurboTax does offer. Um, and, and that's one way to go. But I think local is really your best bet, right? So find somebody in your city, state, or town who knows knows the industry to some extent if you can. And past that, the internet is a great resource. Yeah. You know, it's, um, uh, I always say local because if you can meet the person face-to-face, it's it, you develop a relationship. And a relationship turns into just a, a better feeling when you're doing that, those, those bits of business. Yeah, for sure. Also, you know, just because Cousin Ray Ray has an accounting degree and he can save you a few, few dollars doesn't mean you need to go with Cousin Ray Ray. Like, find, like you yeah. said, somebody that knows Kickstarter, knows manufacturing, whatever your needs are, find somebody for that job because in the long run, you're going to save more money than you would have saved by using a friend or a relative or something. Like that, I think we've. I think you brought this up in, in your podcast many times. Is you know just because your your cousin is an artist yeah. uh, and you know doesn't mean he does art for board games or your game. You know all those <laughs> right. sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, right. Like it's a. If the person is suited to do something, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. You know, we have 
fortunately, my family background, some of them are attorneys. So when I have to have some paperwork looked over, I can often go, hey, would you mind looking over this for me? Uh, that's not the same as saying, hey, you know, you work at a bank. Would you mind, you know, filing our uh, 401k for all of our different employees this year? You know, it's, it, it makes sure people are qualified. Yeah, especially if they're like a teller that they run yeah, the drive-through. Exactly. You know, that's, uh, come on. Uh, yeah, so find the right person for the right job. All right, so let's talk about conventions. So you guys have had a lot of success selling games, you know, at conventions and doing that. Talk me through that process. If I've got a small publishing company and I want to go to an Origins or a Pack South or something like that, what does that look like? What are the timelines? What do I need to really be aware of that maybe wouldn't be obvious my first time around? Start sending emails right now before you make your game, right? Um, you know, even if you don't have a game ready to go, if you even think you do, you need to get in touch with uh, each one of those conventions that you think you might be able to get to. Uh, I'll say, we, you noticed I wasn't at Origins with you this last weekend. Yep. Um, I've been doing this a while. I know about Origins. I know where it was. I just didn't get in touch in time to make it happen. You know, we're, we were busy this year. We had a lot of different things going on at the time, and I didn't send the email in time. It's all it takes, you know. It's and again, if we wanted to maybe fight our way in and do some stuff, we maybe could have. But you probably could have had the uh, the geek yeah. chic space. I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 you could have been there because <laughs> I think that was a, a, a sad, it's, abrupt. It's uh, some open open space there. Yeah, yeah. that was unfortunate. That was <laughs> yeah, very right. unfortunate. That's um, it, when you talk about business. That's another thing where you want to vet everything you're doing, and I, it's another situation where I'm not sure that happened, and I just feel terrible uh, because those were some amazing folks, uh, everyone involved. So it's a I feel horrible for them, but I, I, I know they'll land on their feet and bounce back and do something great. That's that's what folks in this industry do. I mean, that's um, unfortunately, we see people fail. I mean, it does happen in this industry, you know, and, and I, what I'm trying to do is sort of, I guess, make sure maybe you don't fail yeah. if you're getting started right at the very beginning. Um, yeah. we're, we're only a few years in. We still have plenty of opportunity to fail, right? That's uh, That's what everybody does. But I think we're on the right track now. Um, and I think, you know, our upcoming game and stuff like that is, is, is great. But in terms of conventions, the one thing I'll say is they're a blast, man. Like they're so invigorating, right? You just got back from origins. I'm guessing your board game, like your heart is full. Oh yeah. Oh man. That was awesome. That mechanic was awesome. That mechanic, like everything, your brain just starts firing and all these cylinders when you're at a convention. Yeah. Also, my luggage is full too. My heart's full. My luggage is full of games yeah. that I, anyway, yeah. <laughs> that's no, absolutely. So that's one major thing I'll say about us is that when we get started, our games are smaller. You know, Surfer 18 is an 18 card micro game. So I can load up 200 copies in a box that I can carry in my backpack yep. and go into a convention, get set up with all of our banners, our flyers, our stuff. Whereas if you print a Euro game for your first game, that is a 12 pound box that only six of them come in a large box case. Uh, well, now you've got freight costs yep. to go to every single one of these conventions. So that's something to consider is the scale of your game for what you're planning to go do. Yeah, and, um, so and people fortunately have to we started it, small. People have to take yeah, it on yeah. the plane. You know, are they going to have to ship it back? Are they going to go to FedEx store and ship it back to their house? Because they're thinking about that. They're looking at it like, okay, it's not about the money now. Now it's about how big my backpack is or my suitcase. Well, and if your game is available online right. and they're looking at your booth and they can see that they can ship it to their house for the same amount two days later. Yep. It's possible they may not get it there at the convention unless they want to play it right, right. now. So. And you're going to make more money on the game at the convention. Absolutely. Yeah. Every point of sale you can do yourself, you're going to make um, substantially more money. On top of that, you're probably going to get a customer that's going to last much longer because right. you've personally engaged them. You may have signed their box. Yeah. You may have, you know, whatever the case may be, you gain customers much better in person than you do on an online sale. Yeah, and when they play it, they can say, hey, I met this designer. 
Like it yes. gives them that extra little thing to, at game night. Hey, I met the guy. He's pretty cool. And he told me about this like interesting little strategy, whatever it is. I beat him at the game at PAX, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I've been learning that I'm supposed to lose games. I'm very yes. competitive at games. And I've been learning I'm supposed to lose to people. And uh, I, I don't do that normally. I, yeah. I destroy people in our games because I, I like to win. That's right. just, yeah. I keep telling myself um, that. But my wife kicks my butt no matter how hard I play, it seems. And so they have a they have a propensity to do that. My wife, uh, she's really brutal board yeah. gamer as well. <laughs> so, but yeah, so for the conventions, you know, one thing is, is like I said earlier, start small, get a small table. Um, we kind of went big. We got a ten by ten booth our very first time and went all in. And like that's like I said, I don't want to say it was a mistake. We sold out of one of our games. We did very well that weekend. But I think we probably could have done just as well with half the space. You know, we didn't necessarily need the full space. I love PAX. I'll always buy full scale booths now there because that kind of like kicked our company off. And, and just I love the people uh, who I know from the convention. But, you know, it's do what fits your your needs. Yeah. Right. You know, do what fits your needs. And so I think we were talking about this just a second ago with people like leaning back. When you go to convention, you're working. Like you, you're working. I know a lot of people think like, oh, I'm excited and like all that sort of stuff. But like when I start a PAX, I take I start taking vitamin C or the emergency packs on yeah. day one. Um, I drink water and orange juice like crazy because I know my voice is going to go out by Sunday because I'm going to be talking the entire time. You're, you know, you'll, if you go do your first one Saturday afternoon, you go, Oh crap, <clears throat> what am I doing? You know, you don't realize that you don't talk that much normally to people the entire day. Yep. So, I mean, I get, I get a health buffer. I get a voice buffer. And then mentally I used to go out after we finished, you know, showing games and have beers and go eat in the city or whatever and check it out a little bit and then drink a little bit more and go back at, you know, one thirty and then get up at 8 and go get started the next day. I'm 34 with a three-year-old now. At 9 p.m. when the show floor closes or whatever it is, good night, guys. I'm going to the room. I'm going to bed. Uh, maybe a beer and dinner and then to bed or whatever it is, but in bed up the next morning because it's work. Yeah. You know, it's a, it, you know, we were just talking about this earlier. Today's Wednesday. I spent this morning at the zoo with my kid because I work on the weekends a lot of time. You know, it's for the whole weekend and it's a 72 hour work thing if you think about it. And right. if you go into the mindset of like, I'm going to party at this convention or I'm going to have fun, you can have all the fun you want. But when you're there at the booth, it's work, treat it as work and treat it as, you know, hey, we need the most people possible to get as excited as possible about our games because we're competing against hundreds of other games that are here on this floor and in this marketplace and, and thousands of games that are available to every gamer. So, I mean, it's it's work and, and you definitely need to sort of treat it as such or at least, you know, treat it as 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 it demands respect, you know, because I think that that also gives the show itself a little bit more credibility, right? When everybody's being professional, then you go, oh, wow, this is a really big show. I've gone to some that are at like a hotel convention center lobby or something like that. It's just a lot of people hanging out. It just doesn't feel the same. So uh, the other thing about conventions, I would say, is um, take more than you expect to sell. People are going to a convention to purchase games. That's I mean, they're bringing money. That's what they're doing. Uh, when you said something about, you know, how big is the game, too, think about that. Our first game can fit in a shirt pocket. You know, the Stir Fry 18, our first successful game, I should say, um, can fit in a shirt pocket. That huge selling point is convention. Oh, I can stick it in my pocket? All right, 10 bucks, I'll take it. Yeah. You know, that's I, I, I hear that all the time, which is great. And it's a great game. You know, it's not that it's just $10 and it fits in your pocket. It's a really fun game that only uses 18 cards. So the idea is, like, yeah. This fits all your needs for a convention, right? It's small. It's not that expensive. It's easy for you to play in a line while you're waiting for your next panel or whatever the case may be. I mean, cater to what you're going to. 
you know? So if you're going to a cooking convention or something like that and taking a game called stir fry, that's fantastic. But if you're going to a toy convention that's mostly about, you know, My Little Ponies and taking a pirate game called Shipload of Gold, probably not going to do very well. Right. You know, it's just, you know, you know, so so know what you're going to as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool, man. You got any other convention wisdom? Rest and take a lot of emergency. Yeah, I mean, I mean <laughs> yeah. you know, you're, you're, the you're, 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 they, they say it and it's a joke, but I mean, I've done so many of these conventions and seen colleagues get sick. It's you're shaking hands, you're talking to people, they're playing games, they're touching components, you're touching components, right? There's a lot of touching stuff, and then you eat. And yep. just make sure you wash your hands and keep clean. That's a big thing, for, especially if you're working them, because it's different for some reason when you're working them. You seem to catch that stuff easier. That's uh, I, My first two, I came home, and it felt like I had flu-like symptoms for two days after. I mean, it really, it is a big deal. You know, it's, it's a lot of work, too. And it wears you out. It wears you out mentally and physically. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, take care of yourself while you're there because it's it is work. It's it's part of the job, and so treat it as such. Now let's let's talk about Kickstarter from you know from a small publishing company standpoint. You mentioned Kickstarter a little bit earlier, but any kind of words of wisdom or advice through there? So like up until I'd say three months ago, my hardline stance was: Do you want to make games and be a publisher? Then forget crowdfunding. Oh, do right. not do anything with Kickstarter. Blah 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 blah. We can throw that all out the window because we're now in the middle of forming the campaign. Yeah. Um, I, my reasons for doing that previously were if you have a product, put your money up, print it, make it, sell it, and see how it does. Yeah. Don't ask other people for money to put your product right. up. And that, that was Plaid Hats. That was Plaid Hats mentality early on. You know? That was just my – I mean, initially I wanted to not go, oh, well, give me some money and I'll try this thing. Yeah. That just doesn't – that's not my, my – my mental um, state at the time was if I'm going to try something, I need to pay for it. Or we as a group company, you know, we need to pay for it and then see if people want it. That's our responsibility as a publisher. Um, I've since learned that now uh, Kickstarter may, may help us make a better product for our, uh, customers who already know that now we can deliver. So we've already learned how to manufacture. We've already gone through all those mistakes that a lot of first-time Kickstarter people do, which is like, oh, we just found out it's going to cost us this much more to ship everything or all that stuff. <laughs> right. You know, it's a, we, we've already dealt with all that with our own mistakes and money. So now when we go into a Kickstarter, I think it's not going to be, oh, please give us money. It's a, uh, hey, we're making this game. Yeah. If you want us to make it with a uh, better quality, this, this, or that, why don't you get on board and let's, you know, let's all go do this thing together. Um, and it's an experience and it's also uh, uh, something that I now realize is is more than just a hey, give me money so I can print my game, which is what it felt like to me initially. And you know, I've backed a lot of games. Uh, I've had some some real dinkers come to me and go, "Wow, oh, that hurt." Uh, and I've had some amazing, amazing games come to me on Kickstarter. So I think the level of amazing games coming to me on Kickstarter has increased over the past couple of years, which has sort of turned me to the idea of like it's a this is a real platform that uh, our customers can now sort of pre-order our next project, with, yeah. right? Uh, not necessarily give us money to source this project, but but really just, you guys, you want to see what we're working on? Here it is. You jump in with us and we can make it a little bit better. We can make more of them. We can maybe, you know, get different things uh, improved. And we get to get your feedback, which that's the one thing that I really didn't understand about Kickstarter is that during that project, I get to hear your ideas, your feedback, your feelings on this project during it, right? So you can tell me like, hey man, the colors on this, terrible, mm-hmm. like atrocious, you need to fix them. And then if I hear that from 150 people out of 200, well now I know I need to fix that because that's the market, you know, in terms of the Kickstarter group. So 
I, I really now I'm starting to learn and appreciate that. And a lot of that comes from reading about and then listening to your uh, podcast with Daniel Zayas, who yeah. uh, I can now say we've brought on to the team for, for this project, uh, Record, which is our guitar theme Kickstarter we're getting ready to work on. Um, and the game's essentially done. We've been you know showing it and all that sort of stuff. But um, in, in terms of Kickstarter, this is a larger manufacturing scale than we've previously done. Uh, so it, it kind of also helps us in terms of cushioning some of that cost. Yeah. While we could potentially put everything we have into printing this game, it might take more time to recoup, right? And I think it gives you a little bit of a cushion. Um, Again, I'm in a weird place with it because Jamie just moved away from Kickstarter after, you know, after having a ton of success with it. But we haven't done that yet. So, like, let's try this and then let's see how it goes. And and maybe it's not our permanent um, strategy, but I am I, really confident that Daniel seems to know what he's doing. A, B seems to know the platform very well. And see, it, just that the Kickstarter community seems like a really, really cool community of people. Like, I'm part of it in terms that I bought games, but just at the time I spend on there reading comments, they care about the quality of the product that's coming out. Like, uh, that's that's better than your average consumer who will purchase things on face value. So I, I think that there's something to the Kickstarter community just demanding a higher quality, and so maybe we get a higher quality game at the end of this process. Yeah, like you say, it gives people the opportunity to be part of the team. They get to be part of the process as opposed to just buying a game. They get to have some kind of input in uh, into it. And so I think it really... People really like that, you know. They like being part of it. Now, like you said, there have been a lot of games from Kickstarter that should have been play tested for another year, you know, that, that were sent out the door, and, and maybe people got a little excited and they should have taken more time. But yeah, I think we're moving in some really cool time now, where it's getting more and more difficult to tell the difference between a Kickstarter game and just a normal manufactured game. And the crowd's been able to distinguish, I think, better some of those stinkers yeah. right off the bat now right. and say, no, we're not going to let you get this to the point where it funds. Let's work on it and maybe relaunch it down the line with some fixes. But, you know, it's it's become more distinguished to where you can kind of see what's good. And, and you're right. I, I think that I would say that some Kickstarter games surpass the quality of retail games. Um, you know, depending on, on the arena we're talking about, there's certainly some of the miniatures style games that absolutely surpass the quality of retail minis games so and you get a pretty cool price when you get in at the beginning of some of those games too uh so and that's the idea here as well is that we're going to you know allow all of our customers to get in at a cool price that's yeah. better generally with free u.s shipping which you know you're not going to get afterwards because it's just pretty hard to do for the most part unless you're just doing amazon right so um it's it's just a way to say thank you, I guess, for being on board early as well. And I, I do, I do appreciate that and like that. But yeah, it, it, it's we're all human, right? We're able to change our ideas and our opinions and sort of you know learn and, yeah. and grow. And and I've grown into a person who now sort of appreciates the Kickstarter platform, whereas before I thought of it as sort of, I guess, somewhat unprofessional in that you were asking for money for something you had not yet fully produced. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to be able to do that. I think now that we've done that, we can say, look, we're not asking for like unseen money. We've, we've produced two games. We've learned what a bad one looks like. We've learned what a good one looks like. Uh, we've learned how to sell it and what the channels are on that sort of stuff. Um, and so now, you know, with this group of people, like you said, together, let's make a little bit bigger, more complex game with a really awesome guitar theme, right? So. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Now, is there any other kind of closing thoughts for somebody that's maybe thinking about starting there's a small publishing company or, or they're in the first stages of it and they're trying to figure things out? Any kind of advice or anything like that? Last last thoughts? 
Sure. Um, get in touch with people in the industry and start making connections right away. Um, you know, uh, start finding them on Facebook, people that are in it, and then just say, hey, I'm interested in making games. Uh, there's also things like card game designer guilds and different stuff on Facebook. If you want to connect with people who are doing this, you need, I mean, it, that then do that. But if you if you want to do this, you kind of have to connect with people who are doing it yeah. because the industry is, is almost like this big organism, right? And so if you're not part of it, you, you can't you can't operate in it. And so some of the smaller things I'd say to get started on are Boston Festival of Indie Games, Connecticut Festival of Indie Games, you know, uh, some of these sort of, you know, not the huge packs you can do the smaller stuff. You know, Gen Con and Origins are great, but if you can't travel across the country, look for your local uh, gaming convention. They are everywhere. There's a few websites that have a bunch of them listed, but, um, you know, the Festival of Indie Game uh, circuit is something that we have really, really enjoyed so far, um, as well as just meeting different people from different game companies. So I don't want to start listing them because then I'll forget some and I'll feel terrible. So, but there's a lot of companies up here in the Northeast as well as in South Texas and stuff like that, that are great game companies that offered us a lot of advice for free, right? I mean, it's again, like you said, talk to the people who do this and they'll tell you. And I think, you know, again, I'd say anybody's welcome to send me an email, but I'm definitely not an expert. I ask questions of people who are, you know, farther up the line than I am by far. I ask questions of people like Jamie or JR and say, hey, you know, how do you do this? And I'd say the number one thing you can do is ask questions to people who have maybe done it before. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, find the groups online. Facebook has so many, you know, the Tabletop Publishing Guild and the Board Game Designers Guild and all that. Go there. BGDL, uh, actually, I send people to the Board Game Designers Forum, bgdf.com. That's that's where I send people because there's so many really awesome guys over there or people over there. When You can just ask any question, and you have the full gamut of, of experience. You have people that are just getting started, and you have people that have been printing and publishing and designing games for years and years and years. And so you get a really cool uh, just a spectrum of answers to questions. And so, yeah, find people that know more and also ask questions. It's so easy sometimes to think like, you know, everything when the truth is we're all scratching the surface. Yeah. yeah that's I, asking questions and not thinking we knew everything would have saved us tons of money. Up front. <laughs> I, can, I can guarantee it. That's uh, for sure. Yeah. Well, cool. Marshall, man, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about does size matter with Euro games. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear your thoughts on that. You're talking, you know, you've got a bunch of small games, but you're telling me before the show, you love Euro games. You love the big meaty Euros. And so kind of oh, interested yeah. to hear your thoughts on that. And so we'll do that over in the bonus round, but man, good luck with everything. Good luck with a Kickstarter that it's coming Thank up you. soon. And I uh, hope, hope that just goes really well. I appreciate it. Cool. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?